Welcome back to USMLE. Listen, this is Microbiology Chapter 6, all about Enterobacteriaceae. Whether you're on a run or driving, this is the perfect podcast to initiate your auditory learning for the USMLE Step 1. In this episode, we're going to talk all about Enterobacteriaceae. Its features, transmission, predisposing factors, pathogenesis, diseases associated, treatment, and important to know info for the exam. As always, you can email us at usmlelisten at gmail.com for your questions, anything you need clear, or suggestions on how we can improve and initiate your auditory learning for the USMLE Step 1. Sources for USMLE Listen include First Aid, Osmosis, UWorld, and Kaplan Study Guides. This is Mark Labella, and let's begin! Today, we begin with the family of Enterobacteriaceae. This is a family. So you have your gram-negative rods, facultative anaerobes. They ferment glucose, cytochrome C oxidase negative. Oxidase negative. They reduce nitrates to nitrites, and they are catalase positive. And remember our mnemonic for catalase positive organisms, notoriously bubbling hassle. Repetition is key. And because they are catalase positive, what disease can we most commonly see this organism in? In patients with CGD or chronic granulomatose disease. So this family of Enterobacteriaceae, we see endotoxins. Some also produce exotoxins, while they have antigens. And these antigens are four different antigens that we have to talk about. The first antigen is the O antigen. The O antigen. The O antigen is a cell envelope. It's a repetitive glycan polymer contained within an LPS or lipopolysaccharide. It's referred to as the O antigen or O polysaccharide or O side chain of the bacteria. The O antigen is the outermost layer of the LPS molecule. Enterobacteriaceae can also have the H antigen. The H antigen. Or the flagellar, which is only seen in motile cells. Number three is the K antigen. The K antigen. The K antigen is your capsular polysaccharide antigen. K for capsule. The number four is VI antigen or virulence antigen. You could see that in the Salmonella capsular antigen, which we will discuss soon. We find our enterobacteriaceae through blood agar. You can also use the EMB or the eosinmethylene blue agar or the McConkie agar. These are used to differentiate lactose fermentation. Both EMB and MAC agars only grow gram-negative bacteria. I've got a new mnemonic that'll help you remember and make it easier for you for the exam. Lactose fermenters seek lactose. Seek is C-E-E-K. C for Citrobacter, E for Enterobacter, E for Escherichia, and K for Klebsiella. Seek. Citrobacter, Enterobacter, Escherichia, and Klebsiella seek lactose, and thus they are lactose fermenters. And in McConkie agar, they turn pink. Non-lactose fermenters, mnemonic is SHIPS. SHIPS. I ships away from lactose, so I'm a non-lactose fermenter. SHIPS is spelled S-H-Y-P-S. So the S-H is Shigella, while the Y is Yersinia. And S-H-Y is non-motile and non-H2S producing. While the P-S is almost short for positive. P for Proteus, S for Salmonella. And those are your motile, positive motile and positive H2S producer. The first Enterobacteriaceae is Escherichia. 
Of course, the species that we have to focus on here is the E. coli. It's a gram-negative, raw facultative anaerobic oxidase-negative. E. coli is a lactose fermenter. Colonies with iridescent green sheen on EMB agar or eosin methylene blue agar. The reservoir is the human colon. It may colonize the vagina or the urethra. Contaminated crops where human fecal fertilizer is used. Enterohemorrhagic strains such as bovine feces. The transmission is endogenous fecal oral, maternal fecal flora, enterohemorrhagic strains are bovine fecal contamination, raw or undercooked beef, milk, apple juice, from fallen apples. E. coli can cause a number of different diseases. I'll give you the disease and we'll talk about the mechanism of its pathogenesis and the clinical clues that you'll have on the USMLE exam. Let's start with UTIs. The most common cause of urinary tract infections is E. coli. E. coli is endogenous fecal flora and it, and it contaminates and ascends its pathogenesis and why and how it does that is because of its motility it has an adherence to the uroepithelium pyelonephritis associated pili x adhesins and beta hemolytic the clinical clues on while you'll know that the uti was caused by e coli is the fact that it's gram negative bacilli and it's caused by more than 10 to the fifth colony forming units or 100,000 CFUs. You treat that type of UTI by fluoroquinolones or sulfonamides. And just as a correlation to our pharmacology, fluoroquinolones inhibit DNA topoisomerases, while sulfonamides target the folic acid synthesis or DNA methylation by blocking your dihydropterate synthetase. E. coli can also cause neonatal septicemia or meningitis in neonates. It's so common in neonatal meningitis, in fact, that it is the second most common meningitis in newborns. The first is group B strep followed by E. coli. The third is listeria. Don't confuse that with your other age groups for meningitis. This is specifically for newborns from zero to six months. Number one is group B strep. Number two is E. coli. Number three is listeria. So what causes that neonatal septicemia and meningitis? It's caused by the maternal fecal flora or contaminated during parturition or during delivery. Its mechanism of pathogenesis is specifically that K capsule that I was talking about, the capsule of K1 serotype specifically, and an endotoxin that causes the septicemia and meningitis in neonates. K1 capsule is needed for the E. coli to be pathogenic. Your clinical clues on the USMLE will be its blood, CSF culture, and gram-negative bacilli, neonates, and your treatment for this will be ceftriaxone, a cephalosporin, inhibiting the peptoglycan cross-linking. The treatment for neonatal meningitis and neonatal septicemia by E. coli is ceftriaxone. The next disease caused by E. coli is septicemia for adults. Septicemia is seen in indwelling IV catheters, cytotoxic drugs that damage intestinal mucosa and allow escape. Its mechanism of pathogenesis is endotoxin. Your septicemia is caused by the endotoxin from the E. coli, and your clinical clues again is blood culture, gram-negative bacilli, and it's oxidase negative. Let's think back to our VP Chen. E in VP Chen is except Enterobacteraceae. E. coli is an Enterobacteraceae, and that is not oxidase positive. It is oxidase negative. Think back to our mnemonic for the oxidase positive organisms. 
you treat the septicemia by fluoroquinolones and third-generation cephalosporins. The next disease caused by E. coli is gastroenteritis. It's caused by your ETEC or your enterotoxigenic E. coli, causing what is known around the world as traveler's diarrhea. Pathogenesis of ETEC is caused by two different toxins. One is called the LT toxin or the heat labile toxin, which stimulates adenylate cyclase by ADP ribosylation of your GS subunit. ST, the other toxin, is called ST, otherwise known as your heat-stable toxin. It stimulates your guanylate cyclase capsule, which impedes your phagocytosis, and it's got something like a colonizing factor, adhesins that bind to the mucosa. With your ETEC, your clinical clues on the USMLE will include something like a non-inflammatory diarrhea. You have to identify the enterotoxin by immunoassay or bioassay or a DNA probe. You treat ETEC or traveler's diarrhea by rehydration or you can give them TMP-SMX or trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole to shorten your symptoms, but it's usually self-limited. There's another species of E. coli that also causes gastroenteritis and that is EPEC or enteropathogenic E. coli, which is a second most common infantile diarrhea. It's fecal oral and its pathogenesis is because of a little something called M cells. Well, E. coli doesn't have the M cells. M cells are found in your gut lymphoid tissue or your gallt of the payer's patches in the small intestine. What E. coli does, or specifically EPEC or enteropathogenic E. coli, seen in infantile diarrhea, it attaches to it and causes it to adhere to the M cells, rearranging the actin and effacement of the brush border and the microvilli. On the USMLE, your clinical clues would be non-inflammatory diarrhea in babies in developing countries. You treat EPEC or enteropathogenic E. coli with beta-lactams. Beta-lactams for the baby. You can think of the letter P in pathogenic for P for pediatric. The third E. coli that causes gastroenteritis is something called EEC or E-I-E-C or enteroinvasive E. coli. EEC invades the large bowel the large bowel and it causes inflammatory diarrhea similar to shigellosis that induces formation of actin jet trails your usmle clinical clues for eec are one inflammatory diarrhea two there's blood three there's pus four there's fever and five there's abdominal pain fever is huge here. And speaking of blood, there's one other E. coli that causes some bleeding in the poo-poo, but this one doesn't have fever. And this one is EHEC or enterohemorrhagic E. coli or VTEC or 0157H7, which is the most common. It's found in bovine species and petting zoos. Has a verotoxin. The verotoxin is shigella-like toxin. Shigella-like toxins one and two, actually. There's two shigella-like toxins involved here. And EHEC decreases protein synthesis by interfering with your 60S subunit or 60S ribosomal subunit. But unlike shigella, EHEC has no fever and no inflammation. And unlike EEC or EIEC, there is no fever. There's no PMNs but there is blood in the stool. And here's a big clinical clue. EHEC does not ferment sorbitol. Again, EHEC does not ferment sorbitol. What the heck, you don't ferment sorbitol? What the heck, you ain't sorry? And another clue is it may progress to hemorrhagic colitis or hemolytic uremic syndrome. The most common is in children less than five years old. EHEC can cause hemorrhagic colitis and HUS. 
And here's another one causing gastroenteritis called EAEC. How do you say that? EAEC? Otherwise known as enteroaggregative E. coli. EAEC also causes urinary tract infections and it's seen in developing world causing acute and chronic diarrhea because of a certain something called fembrae. Fembrae? That produce stacked brick-like biofilm. An enterotoxin yeast. It causes diarrhea, vomiting, low-grade fever, and it's found in developing countries. I mean, it's probably not just in developing countries because in 2011, in Germany, there was a serious outbreak. 5,000 cases and 50 people died from EAEC. One other thing to note, this is the second most common cause of traveler's diarrhea, second only to our ETEC or enterotoxigenic E. coli. Let's remember that the EAEC or enteroaggregative E. coli stacks it. It aggregates its stack brick-like biofilm aggregation, right, with fembrae. That's important to remember. One rarely heard of E. coli is the DAEC, otherwise known as your diffusely adherent E. coli. Don't know how to say it, but it, it causes disease because its pathogenesis is elongation of the microvilli within the bacteria that's embedded in the cell membrane. You'll see these in infants to five years and will cause non-inflammatory diarrhea. All right, so let's review to see if we remember what we were just listening to and talking about. What is the one E. coli among all that we mentioned does not ferment sorbitol, which means the sorbitol macaque screen will be negative, differentiating it from the other E. coli, and because it does not ferment sorbitol, it remains colorless in the sorbitol macaque screen. Out of the E. coli family, EHEC or enterohemorrhagic E. coli does not ferment sorbitol. Thus, sorbitol's lack of fermentation with that E. coli tells you that we possibly have 0157H7, as 0157H7 is a type of enterohemorrhagic E. coli. Here's a mnemonic and correlation for you. Toxins increase CAMP. OMG, are you like talking about CAMP as in cyclic adenosine monophosphate? Why yes, I'm talking about that CAMP related to increases in adenylate cyclase caused by four exotoxins. CAMP as in C-A-M-P. Toxins increase CAMP. C for cholera, A for anthrax, M for you make the M go to the sideways so you'll get E. coli labile toxin and the P is pertussis so essentially it's C-A-E-P but you know you it's an M that's flipped to the side so that's CAMP. So toxins increase CAMP in cholera toxin, anthrax toxin, M for or E for E. coli labile toxin or E-TEC and then P for pertussis and a mnemonic and something to remember is pitch with all, all the E. coli that we just went over. EPEC is the P for enteropathogenic E. coli, is otherwise known as pediatric, P for pediatric. EIEC, enteroinvasive E. coli, the I means invasive and it also means inflammatory. ETEC in enterotoxigenic E. coli, the toxigenic or the T is for traveler, that's traveler's diarrhea. And the H in EHEC is hemorrhagic and it's hamburger. You see those in hamburgers a lot. And that's all for our E. coli. Yay! Our next enterobacteriaceae is Klebsiella. Klebsiella. Genus features number one, it's gram negative rods. Number two, it is one of the enterobacteriaceae. And number three, it has a major capsule. The species of medical importance that we're looking at is Klebsiella pneumoniae. 
when I said major capsule earlier, I was referring to the large polysaccharide capsule seen in Klebsiella pneumoniae, mucoid lactose fermenting colonies on the McConkie agar, and it's oxidase negative. The reservoir is human colon and upper respiratory tract. The transmission is endogenous. The pathogenesis is capsule. It impedes phagocytosis. The endotoxin causes the fever, inflammation, and shock stemming from septicemia. With Klebsiella pneumonia, you have three different diseases that rise out of this infection. The first one is pneumonia. Remember with pneumonia, it's red jelly sputum. Community acquired most often in older males, most commonly in patients with either chronic lung disease, alcoholism, or diabetes. But this is not the most common cause of pneumonia in alcoholics. Strep pneumoniae is. The pneumonia can also be endogenous, assumed to reach the lungs by inhalation and respiratory droplets from the upper respiratory tract. There's frequent abscesses that make it hard to treat and the fatality of Klebsiella pneumoniae infection is high. Klebsiella pneumoniae has high fatality. Along with the abscesses, you also have a sputum that is generally thick and bloody. Again, I said earlier, currant jelly, not foul-smelling, and is an aerobic aspiration pneumonia. The third disease that Klebsiella can cause is urinary tract infections. You'll see that common in catheter-related or nosocomial infections from fecal contamination of catheters. Number four of its diseases is septicemia in immunocompromised patients, you'll see that it will be originating from the bowel defects or invasion of your IV lines. Diagnosis is culture of sputum or clean catch urine sample. Klebsiella pneumoniae is a lactose fermenter. A fast lactose fermenter at that, along with your eek fast lactose fermenters such as your E. coli, Klebsiella, and Enterobacter. You treat a Klebsiella pneumonia infection with third-generation cephalosporins with or without an aminoglycoside. You can also use fluoroquinolones. You prevent it through good catheter care and limit the usage. Clues to your USMLE exam regarding Klebsiella pneumonia. You'll normally see an elderly patient with typical pneumonia with a curant jelly sputum. You'll see a UTI that's usually catheter-associated. Oh, you'll see septicemia with a patient that's immunocompromised or has a nosocomial infection. It's gram-negative bacilli, it's oxidase-negative, and it's encapsulated, as well as a lactose fermenter. A rather fast lactose fermenter to be exact. Eek! Now that we're dealing with an encapsulated organism like Klebsiella, it's really important that we go over and we remember repetition is key on what our encapsulated organisms are. Please shine my skis is our first aid mnemonic, while Kaplan offers up some killers have pretty nice capsules. Please shine my skis with encapsulated bacteria is P for Pseudomonas aeruginosa, S for Streptococcus pneumoniae, H for H influenza type B, N for Neisseria meningitidis, E for E. coli, S for Salmonella, K for Klebsiella pneumoniae, and S for Group B strep. Capsules serve as an antiphagocytic virulence factor, so it's very important to know them. Kaplan also offers up another mnemonic if you're interested, and that's some killers have pretty nice capsules. Some for strep pneumoniae, killers for Klebsiella, have for Haemophilus influenza type B, pretty for Pseudomonas aeruginosa, nice for Neisseria meningitis and capsules for cryptococcus neoformans. Now we're going to go over genus Shigella. Now all Shigella have gram-negative rods, are enterobacteriaceae, non-lactose fermenters, and of course non-motile. When I think of Shigella, I think of this. Shigella are like so negative. Just hear me out. I think there's a reason why Shigella is super negative. One, 
its facultative anaerobe, it's negative on its affinity for oxygen, it's negative on its motility, it's non-modal, it's, it's negative on its spore forming because it's a non-spore former, it's negative on urease test, it's negative on oxidase tests, it's negative on its lactose fermentation, and it's negative on H2S production. And yeah, it's a gram-negative bacilli. Shigella, you so negative. We're looking at a couple of species of importance here. Shigella sonne, which is the most common in the United States. Shigella flexneri. Shigella dysentery, which is the most severe. And Shigella boidii. We identify the species by its biochemical reactions or by serology with anti-O antibody in the agglutination test. Of course, its reservoir is the human colon only. There are no animal carriers for Shigella. The transmission is fecal oral spread and it's person to person. In a past podcast episode, we talked about sugar-like toxins being produced by EHAC. What the heck? You produce a sugar-like toxin? Alright, so EHAC or Enterohemorrhagic E. coli produces the sugar-like toxin, and it's seen in things like 0157H7 serotypes. But Shigella is the OG. OG. It's the real deal. It produces a sugar toxin produced by Shigella dysentery. It's type 1. It has three activities, the sugar toxin. It is a neurotoxic, it is cytotoxic, and it's enterotoxic. The sugar toxin has an AB component and is internalized in human cells while inhibiting protein synthesis by clipping the 60S ribosomal subunit. And guess what else inhibits the 60S subunit? It's your enterohemorrhagic E. coli. What the heck, E-hack? And obviously, both these guys cause the hemolytic uremic syndrome. But while E-hack can also cause cytokine release and diarrhea, E-hack does not, and I repeat, does not invade your host cells like Shigella does. The OG toxin, the Shiga toxin, is the only one that actually invades your M cells. Shigella has both an endotoxin and an exotoxin, yes. It has no H antigens, but Shigella will invade your M cells. Your colonic enterocytes get all messed up with Shigella. It's membrane ruffling and micropenocytosis. They get into the cytoplasm and replicate and then polymerize actin jet trails to go laterally without backing out into the extracellular milieu. This is going to produce very shallow ulcers, but it rarely does invade your blood vessels, which is the good part, I guess. So let's talk about how all this happens with your M cells, right? Your M cells eat the bacteria from the mucosal lumen. So the M cells, they phagocyte the shigella itself. They, they, they take it in and they spit it out to the malt or the mucosa-associated lymphoid tissues. And within the malt, there's a bunch of macrophages there. And those macrophages are also like, oh dude, I'm gonna eat this up. This is a foreign antigen, right? If this is a bacteria, this does not belong here. It eats it up, and guess what Shigella does? Shigella causes that macrophage to die. The death of the macrophage will induce interleukin beta. I think you mean interleukin 1 beta. Why yes, interleukin 1 beta. And that's what's causing your ulcerations and abscesses in your intestines. And this bugger will make you sick with just a very small inoculum. It causes enterocolitis or shigellosis, which is the most severe form of dysentery. And how do we need such few organisms to infect? This thing, shigella, is extremely acid resistant. It only takes one to four days of incubation. Its organisms invade. It produces bloody diarrhea, generally a fever of more than 100 
101 degrees Fahrenheit because obviously things are getting destroyed in your intestines. You get lower abdominal cramps, tenesmus. Tenesmus is that feeling where you constantly need to poop. You get obviously diarrhea that's first watery, but then it becomes bloody. It's invasive. But the one good thing about Shigella is that it rarely causes septicemia and the ulcerations are relatively shallow. Shallow Shigella. Just like EHEC or enterohemorrhagic E. coli, Shigella also causes blood diarrhea. It makes sense. This bugger also has a type 3 secretory system, which lyses phagosomes. For mild cases, you just need to give them fluid and electrolyte replacement, but for severe cases, of course, antibiotics are very important. There's resistance that's mediated by plasmid-encoded enzymes with Shigella. Many strains of Shigella are ampicillin-resistant. We can only prevent Shigella by proper sanitation of your sewage and your clean drinking water because it's human to human, no animal reservoirs. And as gross as this sounds, Shigella comes from someone's poop to your mouth. Yay! Now it's time to move on to genus Yersinia. Yersinia is a gram-negative rod and also an anterior bacteriaceae. Important species for the exam are Yersinia pestis and Yersinia enterocolita. Let's begin with Yersinia pestis. It's a small gram-negative rods with bipolar staining, facultative intracellular parasite, coagulase positive. So are you like telling me that Staph aureus isn't the only coagulase positive organism? Why yes, Staph aureus is not the only coagulase positive organism. Yersinia pestis also produces coagulase. Yersinia pestis is something that we consider a zoonotic disease. It lives in the U.S. in the desert of the southwest in the rodents like the prairie dogs, the chipmunks, and the squirrels, and it can be used as a potential for biowarfare. It's transmitted through wild rodents or flea bites, causing the sylvatic plague. Human-to-human -human transmission is by respiratory droplets. You know what's crazy about Yersinia pestis? It has coagulase that is contained in the mouth parts of the flea itself. It has both an endotoxin and an exotoxin. It is an envelope antigen called F1, which inhibits phagocytosis. And like our friend Shigella, it has a type 3 secretion system that suppresses cytokine production and resists phagocytic killing. It causes the bubonic plague, flea bites, infected animals, then later uninfected humans. It's rapidly increasing fever, regional bubose, conjunctivitis, and of course, septicemia and death if untreated. The pneumonic plague is different from bubonic in that it arises from septic pulmonary emboli in bubonic plague or inhalation of organisms from another infective individual. And the pneumonic plague is highly, highly contagious. You diagnose through clinical specimens and cultures are hazardous, so do not culture this. You do serodiagnosis or immunofluorescence. The treatment is aminoglycosides for Yersinia pestis. The prevention is animal control, avoid getting sick with dead animals, and also you can give someone killed vaccines. The next species is Yersinia enterocolita. It's motile at 25 degrees Celsius, non-motile at 37 degrees Celsius, and it grows in cold, cold growth, just like Listeria. The reservoir is zoonotic. Transmission is unpasteurized milk, pork, prominent in northern such as Michigan and Scandinavia. It likes the cold. Enterocolita likes the cold. Enterocolita likes the cold. Enterocolita likes the cold. Enterocolita likes the cold. The pathogenesis is it has an enterotoxin and an endotoxin. Again, it multiplies in the cold, causing enterocolitis, enterocolitis, and presentations may vary with age. Let's group the age groups. Number one. Very young. You can get febrile diarrhea and pus. Number two. 
older kids or young adults can get pseudoappendicitis. And that pseudoappendicitis can also be caused by another Yersinia bugger, and that's Yersinia pseudotuberculosis. Again, for memory, pseudoappendicitis equals Yersinia pseudotuberculosis or Yersinia enterocolita. And number three. In adults, you can get enterocolitis with post-infective sequelae, kind of like reactive arthritis. Yersinia enterocolita also causes blood transfusion-associated infections. So how do we diagnose Yersinia enterocolita? Through stool culture in 25 degrees or a cold environment. The treatment is usually just supportive, but for immunocompromised patients, you give them fluoroquinolones or third-generation cephalosporins. So what are the USMLE questions that are most likely going to surround Yersinia? In Yersinia pestis, the patient comes in with a high fever, bubose, conjunctivitis, or pneumonia. Obviously, it's not going to say the word bubose. It's probably going to say something like adenitis or inflammation of the lymph nodes or reactive lymphadenopathy. And patient may also have pneumonia with Yersinia pestis. And very important to our clinical clue is exposure to small rodents in the desert in the southwest of the United States. But what about Yersinia enterocolita? Alright, with Yersinia enterocolita, you'll see some clinical clues that include patient has inflammatory diarrhea or pseudoappendicitis. Climates are very important, so you have to remember with Yersinia enterocolita, you have cold climates. The person is coming from a cold climate like Missouri or Michigan or Scandinavia. They've been eating some sort of unpasteurized milk or pork, and then you find gram-negative bacilli, it's non-lactose fermenter, and it's a non-H2S producer, and then you most likely have Yersinia enterocolita. Pseudoappendicitis is caused both by either Yersinia pseudotuberculosis or pseudoenterocolita. Yay! Now it's time for the genus Proteus. Proteus are gram-negative rods, Enterobacteriaceae, Peritrichus flagella. It's highly modal, very, very highly modal. I guess with all its flagella, it's very fast and it causes swarming motility. It's non-lactose fermenting, but it's urease positive. Remember your P chunks mnemonic for your urease positive organisms. Proteus is one of them. The two species we're looking at are Proteus mirabilis, which is 90% of infections, and Proteus vulgaris. The high motility, you'll see it swarming the entire surface of your blood agar plate. And important to remember that Proteus is a facultative anaerobe, just as your Enterobacteriaceae are, and it is oxidase negative. The reservoir is your human colon and the environment seen in water and soil. It's endogenous, and the urease in the Proteus, it raises your urine pH and causes your kidney stones, very common in staghorn renal calculi. When you see a staghorn renal calculi, it's most likely Proteus, and if it's not Proteus, it's some other urease-positive organism. Motility of Proteus is so swarming and fast that it's what aids it into entering the bladder. It also releases an endotoxin which causes fever and shock when septicemia occurs. You'll see Proteus in urinary tract infections and septicemia. You diagnose this through blood culture or urine culture for lactose-negative organisms with swarming motility. Your treatment is fluoroquinolones, TMPSMX, or trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, 
or your third-generation cephalosporin for uncomplicated UTIs. You also remove the stones if they are present. You prevent this by promptly removing urinary tract catheters if the patient has one. You can also do the vile Felix test. It's an antigens of the ox strains of Proteus vulgaris or the OX strains of Proteus vulgaris, which can cross-react with rickettsial organisms. On your USMLE exam, you'll see these important clinical clues if it's either Proteus mirabilis or Proteus vulgaris. The patient will have a UTI or septicemia. The patient will have swarming motility. Patient may have struvite stones or staghorn renal calculi. And of course, the results are gram-negative, non-lactose fermenting, and urease positive. Now let's move on to the genus Salmonella. Salmonella are gram-negative rods, of course, an Enterobacteriaceae, non-lactose fermenter, it's motile, and there are more than 2,400 serotypes of salmonella, there's a bunch of them. And salmonella are named by genus, which is salmonella, and their species, which is, for example, like Enterica, and their subspecies, which is Typhi or Enterididis. The genus and the species that we're especially going to look at for the USMLE is Salmonella, Enterica, and the subspecies are either Typhi, Enteritidis, Typhurium, Colorosuis, Paratyphi, and Dublin. OMG, Mark, how are we like supposed to remember all that? We're going to simplify for the exam. The main things that we have to worry about are the Salmonella enterica subspecies Typhi and the Salmonella enterica subspecies other than Typhi. And we begin with Salmonella enterica subspecies Typhi. Some features that distinguish them from the rest of the Salmonella and the rest of Enterobacteriaceae are one, gram-negative rods, they're highly modal with a VI capsule. VI capsule. Salmonella typhi are facultative anaerobes, they're non-lactose fermenting, and they produce hydrogen sulfide, or H2S. Mnemonic reminder. Some nasty bugs may live facultatively. S for Salmonella, N for Neisseria, B for Brucella, M for Mycobacterium, L for Listeria, F for Francisella, L for Legionella, and Y for Yersinia. Some nasty bugs may live facultatively. You species identify through biochemical reactions and they're sensitive to acids. And because Salmonella is and because salmonella is very sensitive to acid, you're going to need a high amount of inoculum to make you sick. And thus, that's why people with decreased stomach acid or impairment of mononuclear cells, such as sickle cell, predisposes them to salmonella infections. Salmonella typhi causes typhoid fever or enteric fever, while a milder form of it is caused by salmonella paratyphi called paratyphoid fever. I did mention that you need a lot of inoculum for this, right? Like a lot of organisms need to be ingested for you to have actual salmonella typhi or typhoid fever. The infection begins in the ileocecal region, causing constipation, most common of all. So once salmonella gets into contact with the epithelial layer of the distal ileum, the M cells start eating it up and then spitting it out into the Peyer's patches. Remember that the Peyer's patches are the immune tissue in your submucosa. So it gets spat out into the Paris patches and picked up by macrophages. What Salmonella does is that it decreases neutrophil reaction and response and increases your macrophage response. And what protects it from the macrophages? Your VI capsule. And what makes Salmonella extra annoying is that it decreases the fusion of the lysosomes with your phagosomes. And then it has defensins or proteins that allow it to withstand oxygen-dependent and oxygen-independent killing. And how does Salmonella typhi stop your macrophages lysosomal fusion? It has a type 3 secretion system. 
Typhi literally hitches a ride in that macrophage and it flows through your thoracic duct, going into your liver, spleen, bone marrow, gallbladder, and your other lymph nodes. Yeah, once it reaches your basolateral side of your M cells, it goes into your mesenteric lymph nodes and your blood, causing primary septicemia. So at week one, patients have 80% blood culture positive and 25% have rose spots in their trunk or abdomen. Typhi does not play games. The liver and spleen are infected with additional release of bacteria to the bloodstream. Thus, the sign of septicemia begin mainly starting with a fever. The biliary system, which includes the liver, the gallbladder, is infected and organisms will enter your intestinal bile tract, causing you to poop out salmonella typhi. And remember, the reservoir for salmonella is only humans and there are no animal reservoirs. So when they're saying just humans, not involving chicken or anything like that, that's salmonella typhi. The only way that we can get it on food is if we don't wash our hands and it comes from our poop to their hands to someone's mouth. And because salmonella travels all these distances, in week three is when you get an 85% of stool cultures that are positive. Your symptoms will start with a fever, headache, abdominal pain, and again, constipation is more common than diarrhea. The complications, if left untreated though, you'll get necrosis of your payer's patches with perforation. And it's because of the local endotoxin trigger damage. You can get thrombophlebitis, cholecystitis, pneumonia, and abscess formation. And of course, sepsis. You can diagnose salmonella Typhi. through organisms that are isolated from the blood, the bone marrow, the urine, and the tissues, especially with the biopsies performed from rose spots if they are present. And remember when I said that salmonella Typhi. sometimes it doesn't show up until week three of infection? The salmonella Typhi. bacteria may be absent from your stool, which makes bile cultures the most effective diagnostic tool. So how do we treat this crazy bugger? By fluoroquinolones, remember fluoroquinolones, your oxacins blocking your DNA topoisomerases, or your third generation cephalosporins such as your ceftriaxone. This is the word of warning that antibiotics can prolong the secretion of bacteria in your poop in your feces. <laughs> there are a few ways that we can prevent salmonella typhi. One of them is sanitation. The other one is there are three vaccines. One is an attenuated oral vaccine of salmonella typhi strain 21 or TI 21A. Two, a parenteral heat killed salmonella typhi, which is no longer used in the United States, but is used in other countries. And three, a parenteral VICPS polysaccharide capsular vaccine. There are two things that I also want you to remember about salmonella typhi. One, that it is encapsulated bacteria, and which means, like a lot of other encapsulated bacterias, people who have splenic issues or are asplenics are in danger of this type of bacteria. Mark, can you like remind me of the mnemonic for encapsulated bacteria? Yeah, sure. It's please shine my skis. P for Pseudomonas aeruginosa, S for Streptococcus pneumoniae, H for Haemophilus influenza type B, N for Neisseria meningitidis, E for E. coli, S for Salmonella, K for Klebsiella pneumoniae, and S for Group B strep or Strep agalactiae. The next subspecies that we're going to talk about or bring up are Salmonella enterica subspecies other than Typhi, which includes your Salmonella enteritidis and your Salmonella typhimurium. There's still facultative gram-negative rods, non-lactose fermenting on EMB, and the McConkie medium, which means they're not going to turn pink. It also produces hydrogen sulfide, just like Typhi, and it's also modal, unlike Shigella. It's speciated with biochemical reactions and serotype with O, H, and VI antigens. 
antibodies to O, VI, and H antigens in the patient's serum can be detected by agglutination, and we call that test the Whittle test. It's spelled W-I-D-A-L, the Whittle test, or Vidal test, depending on where you're from. The reservoir includes your enteric tracts of your human beings and your domestic animals such as your chickens and your pet turtles. You transmit it largely through chicken products such as your raw chicken or raw eggs and your reptile pets such as your snake and again your pet turtles. They are dirty. Salmonella subspecies other than typhi or except typhi are sensitive to stomach acid. So you'll need 10 to the 5th or 100,000 colony forming units as an infectious dose. Some of the subspecies other than typhi also can proliferate easier when your stomach acid acidity is lower and you lower that acidity by taking antacids or having a previous gastrectomy and they both increase the risks. Some of the enterica subspecies other than typhi also have endotoxins in their cell wall but they do not have exotoxins. All salmonella have endotoxin but no exotoxin. They invade the mucosa in the ileocecal region and invasive to the lamina propria, causing inflammation and in turn increases your prostaglandins as well as increasing your CAMP or your cyclic AMP, which then results to loose diarrhea and shallow ulcerations. Salmonella except typhi spread to septicemia but are not common with Salmonella enterica, some species enteritidis, but may occur with the non-typhi Salmonella. No septicemia with enteritidis. Speaking of non-typhi Salmonella, we're looking at diseases such as enterocolitis or gastroenteritis, which is the second most common bacterial cause after Campylobacter. Campylobacter. You only need a 6 to 48 hour incubation period, which will then include nausea, vomiting, only occasionally bloody loose stools, fever, abdominal pain, myalgia, and headache. With non-typhi salmonella, yes, you can get septicemia, but not with enteritidis. But non-typhi septicemia can be caused by salmonella enterica subspecies cholera suis, subspecies paratyphi, and subspecies Dublin. It's not very common, but when it does occur, it occurs with very young or very elderly. A complication of endocarditis or arthritis will come in about 10% of your cases. And lastly, non-typhi salmonella can also cause osteomyelitis, especially in sickle cell disease. Salmonella is the most common causal agent of osteomyelitis in sickle cell disease, but not trait. You can see that in more than 80% of patients with sickle cell disease. You can diagnose this through culture by culturing on hectoin agar, your hectoin enteric agar, and you can check for your H2S or hydrogen sulfide production. The treatment for gastroenteritis is self-limiting and antibiotics are contraindicated because antibiotics can prolong the disease, but for invasive disease, you're gonna have to do something about that, right? So you can give ampicillin, third-generation cephalosporins, fluoroquinolones, or trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, or TMP-SMX. You can prevent this by properly cooking foods and washing hands, particularly by your food handlers. OMG, Mark, can we like do a three-way comparison between Salmonella typhi, non-typhi Salmonella, and Shigella? Let's compare the three between the Salmonella typhi, Salmonella except typhi, and Shigella. In all of them, humans are natural reservoirs, but only one of the three have reservoirs in animals, and that is the non-typhi Salmonella. That's Salmonella species except Salmonella typhi. How do they spread? Yes, all of Salmonella can spread hematogenously, but Shigella is a cell-to-cell -cell transmission with no hematogenous spread. That means it can't spread by blood. 
which ones have H2S production? Olive salmonella produces hydrogen sulfide production. Olive salmonella has hydrogen sulfide or H2S production. Shigella does not. Which one has motility? Just remember that salmon swims. If salmon swims, that means salmon has flagella and Shigella does not. So if salmon swims, it's motile, while Shigella with no flagella is non-motile. What about the virulence factors? Only one of the three has the VI capsule, and guess which one it is? It's Salmonella typhi that has the VI capsule. They all have endotoxins, but only one of the three has an exotoxin. And that is Shigella, known as your Shigatoxin. And that is an enterotoxin. What about your infectious dose? Salmonella requires a lot of inoculum, a lot of bacteria, because it can be destroyed by your gastric acids, while Shigella only needs a very small inoculum. Shigella is very acid-stable and is resistant to your gastric acids. Effect of antibiotics on fecal excretion. All salmonella have a prolonged duration when given antibiotics, but antibiotics shorten Shigella duration. Differences in the immune response between the three of them. While salmonella typhi deals primarily with monocytes, monocytes, polymorphonuclears or PMNs are in disseminated disease of salmonella non-typhi species. Shigella also primarily deals with polymorphonuclears or PMNs during infiltration. But overall, what makes salmonella typhi most different out of the three of them is that it causes typhoid fever. Its symptoms include rose spots on the abdomen, constipation, abdominal pain, fever, and later you'll get a GI ulceration and hemorrhage with salmonella typhi. You treat salmonella typhi with ceftriaxin or fluoroquinolones, and typhi has a carrier state caused by gallbladder colonization. Now, salmonella species except typhi, you can see those on poultry and eggs and pets and turtles are the most common sources. Antibiotics are not indicated for salmonella species except typhi, and you will get gastroenteritis that is usually caused by non-typhoidal salmonella. Shigella, however, has the four Fs, your fingers, your flies, your food, and your feces. Let's order the subspecies of Shigella in decreasing severity. And when I mean decreasing severity, I'm talking about in order of toxins produced. From most toxins produced to the least toxins produced. Number one. Shigella dysentery. Number two. Shigella flexneri. Number three. Shigella boidi or boidii. Number four. Shigella sonne. Shigella invades your M cells and, and the M cells are key to its pathogenicity. But even the weakest Shigella can still cause disease. Yay! The next genus is Haemophilus. Haemophilus are gram-negative pleomorphic rods requiring growth factors X and V. X for hemin and V for NAD. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. X and V are required for growth of Haemophilus species on blood and nutrient agars. And with Haemophilus, we're looking at two species of medical importance, and one is Haemophilus influenzae, and the second one is Haemophilus ducreyi. First, Haemophilus is Haemophilus influenzae. It's encapsulated bacteria. Encapsulated. Gram-negative rod, which is 95% of invasive disease caused by capsular type B. It's a rather fastidious organism requiring factors X and V. And when I say fastidious, I mean it's an organism with a complex nutritional requirement. Its reservoir is, of course, in the human nasopharynx, being transmitted through respiratory droplets. And when I say Haemophilus influenzae, I'm talking talking about two different strains. One is encapsulated. Yes, and I did just mention that 95% of invasive disease is caused by capsular type B. The other one is unencapsulated. Unencapsulated. There are 
are two different ways that they infect. The encapsulated bacteria and the encapsulated type, like the type B, is more invasive and its increased invasiveness is what causes your epiglottitis and cellulitis and your bacteremia and your bronchitis. And it's seen in 3-5% to in children of 2-5 to years old. Let's remember that the encapsulated types are the only ones that are classified into strains. Type B is the most common among those. The capsule is very important in diagnosis and we can use that in antigen screen on CSF with latex particle agglutination and we can also do serotyping all isolates by Quailung or what's called a Quailung reaction. Haemophilus influenzae also has an IgA protease which is a mucosal colonizing factor. Are there like other IgA protease organisms that I need to worry about? Why yes, you gotta remember that your IgA proteases are in your shin organisms. The S for S pneumoniae, H for H influenzae type B. Type B is capsular. And N for Neisseria. Shin is the pneumonia for your IgA protease organisms. Oh yeah. The unencapsulated type is what's seen in 40 to 80% in adults. With the unencapsulated type, you have two main things that make it so strong. One is your phase variation. That means we can't really make vaccines out of it because there's too many different phase variations. And when I say phase variations, these are the differences in the oligosaccharides on its membrane. And number two is that it produces biofilms. And what Ellis's Haemophilus influenzae have? It has this thing called LOS or lipooligosaccharides. The lipooligosaccharides help to colonize the respiratory tract and inhibit mucociliary clearances. Common diseases of Haemophilus influenzae include number one, meningitis. There is an epidemic in there is an epidemic of meningitis in unvaccinated children ages three months to two years. And meningitis sets in after the and meningitis sets in after your maternal antibodies have waned and before the immune response of the child is adequate enough to fight it. H. influenzae was the most common cause of meningitis in 1 to 5 year olds in children, mainly, th mainly those younger than 2 up to the 1990s. But now, number 1 most common meningitis in children is strep pneumo followed by Neisseria meningitidis and number 3 is Haemophilus influenzae. But no matter how you put it, Haemophilus influenzae is still a problem if the child is less than 2 years and is not vaccinated. Infants 2 months to 6 months of age should receive either a 2-dose or a 3-dose series of Haemophilus influenzae. Haemophilus influenzae disease number 2 is otitis media. And Haemophilus influenzae derived otitis media is usually caused by non typable strains. No capsule equals non typable. Number three. Three common disease with Haemophilus influenzae is bronchitis. Bronchitis is brought upon by exacerbations of acute bronchitis in smokers with COPD. For the bronchitis, you can thank the polysaccharide capsule, which is the type B capsule, otherwise known as your polyribitol phosphate, polyribitol phosphate, which is its most important virulence factor, and leads me to number four, epiglottitis. The type B capsule is also responsible for your epiglottitis. It's rare in vaccinated children and seen in unvaccinated toddlers. Haemophilus influenzae type E is the major causal agent for these. Number five is pneumonia. Yes, pneumonia is rare in vaccinated children. This one is commonly seen in smokers. And non-typable Haemophilus influenzae is the second most common cause of pneumonia in adults 40 to 65 years old. Strep pneumonia remains number one for that. And for that, non-typable aka unencapsulated Haemophilus influenzae is an important cause of community-acquired pneumonia, especially in elderly and adults with COPD. 
You diagnose Haemophilus influenzae through blood or CSF culture on chocolate agar. You can also do a PCR test, and you can also do an antigen detection of the capsule itself using a latex particle agglutination. Treatment for Haemophilus influenzae is cefataxime or ceftriaxone for empirical therapy of meningitis. It's important to check the nasal carriage before releasing the patient, and we have to use rifampin if it is still colonized. Prevention is key with Haemophilus influenzae. Use a conjugate capsular polysaccharide protein vaccine, and vaccination is effective only to prevent type B disease. This vaccination uses the polyribitol capsule conjugated to protein, and like diphtheriotoxoid or the Neisseria meningitidis outer membrane proteins, it makes it a T-cell dependent vaccine or a T-cell dependent type of vaccination. We usually vaccinate our babies at 2 months, 4 months, and 6 months and the booster at 15 months. The Hib vaccine or the Haemophilus influenzae type B vaccine is 95% effective. You can also use rifampin as a preventive strategy. Rifampin reduces the oropharynx colonization and prevents meningitis in unvaccinated close contacts of less than 2 years of age. The next species in Haemophilus is Haemophilus ducreyi. We know this as an STD, and its reservoir is your human genitals. You can transmit this through sex and direct contact. Haemophilus ducreyi causes a cancroid and genital ulcers with soft, painful canker. How you remember that is you do cry with ducreyi. Cry with ducreyi. Haemophilus ducreyi is slow to heal without treatment, and it causes open lesions that increase the transmission of HIV. You diagnose this through a DNA probe, and you treat it with azithromycin mycin, ceftriaxone, and ciprofloxacin. The next genus is Gardenella. Gardenella is a gram-negative pleomorphic rod, and it's catalase and oxidase negative. Its species of medical importance is Gardenella vaginalis. Gardenella vaginalis is a gram-variable rod, and it is a facultative anaerobe. Its reservoir is the human vagina. And when I mention gram-variable, I mean that when Gardenella vaginalis is just a young colony, its thick peptidoglycan layer actually makes it gram-positive. It takes in the dye. But once the colony ages and it's older, Gardenella vaginalis is gram-negative. Its peptidoglycan layer thins out as it gets older. It has an inability to take in the purple gram stain. Its reservoir is the human vagina and its transmission is endogenous. Garnella vaginalis exists in the vagina as a normal flora, but it exists in low numbers. But once lactobacillus and all this normal flora gets disturbed, it increases the pH, which is normally at less than 4.5. 4.5. And this disruption that I tell you about is because of factors like having a new sexual partner or having multiple sexual partners or even having a new IUD implanted and its pathogenesis is through polymicrobial infections it normally works synergistically with other normal flora organisms including your lactobacillus mobilunkus bacteroides and peptostreptococcus gardenella vaginalis is thought to flourish when the vaginal pH increases and thus reducing your vaginal lactobacillus and one other thing that we didn't get to mention is that gardenella vaginalis produces biofilm film, it has cytotoxic vaginolysin, an enzyme called sialidase, sialidase is an enzyme that cleaves terminal sialic acid residues from human glycans, and notably high sialidase activity is associated with preterm birth and low birth weight. And how does bacterial vaginosis or Gardenella vaginalis cause that distinct vaginal odor? That odor is due to the proteolytic carboxylase enzymes. Proteolytic carboxylase enzymes causing a fishy amine smell. So when you have bacterial vaginosis caused by Gardenella vaginalis, you'll have the vaginal odor, you'll have an increased discharge that is a thin gray fluid. 
diagnose it through finding that the pH is more than 4.5, you have clue cells in your KOH web prep, and you'll see these epithelial cells that are covered with bacteria. And because of that proteolytic carboxylase enzyme, you can actually do a whiff test. You add KOH or potassium hydroxide to the sample, and you'll get this fishy amine odor. Since bacterial vaginosis is fairly common, it's good to remember the treatment, which is metronidazole or clindamycin. Again, for bacterial vaginosis is metronidazole or clindamycin. Yay! The next genus is Pastorella. Pastorella are small gram-negative rods and are facultative anaerobes. The species of medical importance here is Pastorella multicida. The reservoir for Pastorella multicida is mouths of many animals, especially cats and dogs. The transmission is animal bites, but usually, particularly from these bites, are the cat bites. Wasn't there another bacteria that was like about cats or whatever? Differentiate that from Bartonella hensley, which are cat scratch, while Pastorella is cat bites. And just animal bites in general. Pastorella gets us sick because of endotoxin and a capsule. It spreads rapidly within the skin and can leave necrosis in its wake by dermonecrotic toxin called the Pastorella multicida toxin or the PMT. Other than Pastorella, can you like remind me what the other encapsulated organisms are? Alright, sure. When you think of a capsule, think of something shiny, right? So it's please shine my skis. P for Pseudomonas, S for Strepneumo, H for Haemophilus influenzae, N for Neisseria meningitidis, E for E. coli, my, my has no meaning, it's just there. And then skis is S for Salmonella, Sal likes to ski. K for Klebsiella, and S for GBS, or Group B Strep, or Strep agalactiae. Speaking of encapsulated organisms, we also have to remember because Pastorella is encapsulated, we have to worry about our patients that are asplenics. The spleen is very much involved in defense against encapsulated organisms. Pastorella causes cellulitis with lymphadenitis. You'll see this in wound infections that are rapidly spreading, and it's frequently seen in polymicrobial infections. One thing that we have to remember that pastorella needs iron to survive. We can culture this. It's rarely cultured because routine prophylaxis is common, but we treat it with amoxiclav, amoxicillin, or clavinate for the cat bites, and it's resistant to macrolides. Remember, pastorella is resistant to macrolides. Amoxicillin clavulinate, or amoxiclav, is your standard prophylaxis and your standard treatment for most bites, including human bites. And of course, that goes in tandem with thorough cleaning. If another person bites you, you give them amoxiclav. What about like other animal bites and other bacteria associated with bites? Alright, let's talk about three of them. Number one. Iconella corrodens. This is a gram-negative rod. It corrodes agar, so it causes a bleach-like odor. And it's seen in the human oropharynx in human bites or fist fight injuries. The disease that it causes is cellulitis, and you treat it with third-generation cephalosporins or fluoroquinolones. Number two. Capnocytophagia canimorsis. It's a gram-negative filamentous rod that is from dog oropharynx or dog bite wounds. It causes cellulitis. If you have had a splenectomy or you have a splenia, it can cause overwhelming sepsis. Capnocytophagia canimorsis is treated with third-generation cephalosporins, fluoroquinolones, and is resistant to aminoglycosides. Number three. Is Bartonella hensley, 
Like I mentioned earlier, this one causes cat scratch disease. So it's a gram-negative rod. Its reservoir is cats and dogs, and you can get it through bites and scratches and fleas. Its disease is cat scratch fever and bacillary angiomatosis in AIDS patients. If you have a patient with lesions that are very painful in AIDS patients, this is a big clue that it is a Bartonella Hensley bacillary angiomatosis. You treat this with azithromycin or doxycycline. But Mark, have you heard of like Hatchek group infections? Hatchek or H-A-C-E-K group infections are group of gram-negative fastidious rods. These organisms are normally a part of the normal flora of your mouth and throat. Hatchek stands for H for Haemophilus, A for Actinobacillus, C for Cardiobacterium, E for Echinella, and K for Kingella. And if you want to be specific on their species, it's H for Haemophilus aprophilus, A for Actinobacillus actinomycetum comitans, C for Cardiobacterium hominis, E for Echinella carotens, and K for Kingella kingae. So these organisms were once thought to be major causes of endocarditis, but research has shown, or recent research has shown, that hatchback organisms are responsible for a small number of infective endocarditis, and they are usually subacute. They're considered the most common cause of gram-negative endocarditis in non-IV users, but they're normally all just a part of normal oral flora. They're difficult to diagnose with a mean diagnosis time of three months. It's insane. And it's treated with third-generation cephalosporins or fluoroquinolones. Let's talk about endocarditis for a bit. Endocarditis can either be infective or non-infective. Non-infective endocarditis can be caused by things like pro-inflammatory cytokines, hypercoagulable states caused by things like pancreatic adenocarcinoma, or systemic lupus erythematosus. Infective endocarditis, however, is caused number one by strep viridens or viridens group strep, specifically your strep sanguinis. That is the the most common and usually see that in subacute endocarditis. Staph aureus is your second most common and it usually affects your tricuspid valve and it's usually acute. Acute. Staphylococcus aureus is usually acute. Number three is staph epidermidis and that's usually caused by prosthetic valves and when you see the word prosthetic valves in there already think oh man this could be staph epi. The fourth cause of endocarditis or infective endocarditis is enterococcus. Number five is strep gallolyticus, or formerly known as strep bovis. And when you see strep bovis or strep gallolyticus in infective endocarditis, you usually suspect colorectal cancer. Strep gallolyticus, colorectal cancer. Number six is coxiella burnetti. It's actually pronounced as coxiella burnettii. And you see endocarditis with these patients that are immunocompromised, pregnant individuals, or they have pre-existing heart defects. It takes months and years after the initial infection of coxiella burnettii to develop endocarditis. And remember, exposure to infected animals is a big clue with coxiella. The last genus of Enterobacteriaceae is Bacteroides. Bacteroides are gram-negative rods. They're anaerobic. Bacteroides are anaerobic. They do not like oxygen. And they have modified lipopolysaccharides or LPS with reduced activity. Of course, the species of medical importance on this anaerobic bacteria is Bacteroides fragilis. Bacteroides fragilis reservoir is human is the human colon. In the human colon, the genus Bacteroides is the predominant anaerobe. And of course, since it's from the human colon, the transmission is endogenous from bowel defects. And you can get this from things like cytotoxic drug use, cancer, surgery, or trauma. 
its pathogenesis is modified LPS or modified lipopolysaccharide with a missing heptose and 2-keto-3-deoxyoctanate. The missing heptose and 2-keto-3-deoxyoctanate has reduced endotoxin activity and Bacteroides fragilis is encapsulated. Its capsule is antiphagocytic. It can cause septicemia peritonitis, often in mixed infections and abdominal abscess. You can diagnose Bacteroides fragilis with anaerobes, which are identified by biochemical tests and gas chromatography. You treat Bacteroides fragilis with metrodidazole, clindamycin, or cefoxetin. Its abscesses should be surgically drained. And important to remember, it has antibiotic resistance, which is very common with Bacteroides, with penicillin G, some cephalosporins, and aminoglycosides. 7 to 10% of all strains are now clindamycin resistant with Bacteroides fragilis. You can prevent this by giving prophylactic antibiotics for GI or biliary tract surgery. Thank you for stopping by here on USMLE. Listen, this is Microbiology Chapter 6, Enterobacteriaceae. We will be covering the spirochetes on the next episode since we had so much to cover in the Enterobacteriaceae chapter. Thank you for initiating your auditory learning here with us at USMLE. Listen, sources for USMLE. Listen include First Aid, Osmosis UWorld, Kaplan Study Guides. This is Mark Labella. You can follow me or message me on Instagram at Mark. Jay LaBella. See you on the next episode for your auditory learning here at USMLE Listen.